Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Amen. As you are being seated, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah in the 66th chapter. It is the last chapter in the book of Isaiah. And you know that I traditionally don't pick up a text in the last chapter. But for this particular message today, we are going to be asking a question, and it is in this chapter, in these two small verses that we are going to look at today, that that question will be answered. It seems more so than ever in our culture that people are living for the approval of others. We're consumed with it. We're consumed with desiring likes, receiving positive feedback or positive comments on our social media, getting the old thumbs up, which everyone craves and seems to lust for these days. And it seems that so many are enthralled and consumed by receiving man's approval. The approval of their peers. Many of you dress to gain the approval of your peers, what you have as far as clothing on your body, uh, before you put it on this morning, you thought, well, so-and-so approve of this. Be that your best friend, your husband, your wife. Many spend much time and much effort trying to gain the approval, again, of those peers, those people around them, and even, unfortunately, in the social media world, people who aren't really even our friends at all. Yet we strive so diligently to be approved by them. Some of you today came to church so that I would approve you. I I, I have those people here. I know that. That they come because they want to be seen. They want to receive approval from myself, from the leadership of this church, from their Bible study teachers, from those people who are sitting next to them. We're so concerned with this. So driven in our society, in our culture by this, that many have never one single time stopped to consider if they were living for the approval of God as long as they had the approval of men. And I want us today to look at that subject in a message entitled, Those God Approves. Those God Approves. I want us to understand today that God does not approve of everyone. As many of you have been taught in error, that somehow a holy God who cannot even look upon sin, somehow tolerates the sin of this world and just accepts everyone? It's not so. I want to be honest with you, and I want you to understand that today, that God doesn't approve everyone. In fact, some of you here today might not have the approval of God on your life. 
I want you to understand that God is not for everyone. He doesn't accept our human efforts, our human desires, our human works. In fact, most of the time, if the, man, if the world and the men and the women of this world approve of it, God is in direct opposition of it. Seems to be the case. But what does he approve? Is you could have the approval of the whole world here today. Get more likes and more comments and more thumbs up than anybody else in the room. All the while, God is giving a big thumbs down to your life, and he does not approve of your life at all. And what a startling thing that we would accept the approval of men. With no consideration, no concern for the approval of God. So we ask that question, who does God approve? We ask that question only to find our answer here in Isaiah 66. Here in the first and second verse, mainly the second verse, and then we'll come back and look at the first verse later on. In fact, Isaiah is going to give us three characteristics that mark those that God approves. And so pay attention with me as we read Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Who says it? The Lord. Isaiah makes that very plain, very clear. This is what the Lord says. This is not my opinion. This is not the opinion of Kirk Hall. This is not the opinion of the leadership of Key Life Fellowship. This is not the opinion of any Bible study leader here. This is not the opinion of any book that I've read on theology or doctrine. It says very plainly, this is what the Lord says. If you want to know who God truly approves, pay attention. Because he's going to say right here who he truly approves. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? He's saying all these things because man in their efforts tried to somehow gain God's approval by doing things with their hands, by building him a temple, by building him an altar, by building him a cathedral. God is saying, what could you really build that's going to impress me? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. He said, how are you going to impress me? I made the Rocky Mountains. The sun that you watched to set last night, I put it there. How are you going to impress me with something that you might build in your prideful effort? He goes on and he says this. This is the one I esteem. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who is the one that the Lord approves? It is he who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at his word. What's interesting in my life as God is preparing me to deliver messages to this congregation that belongs to Him. It never ceases to amaze me how many times these topics come up, whether it be listening to sermons from other preachers, whether it be reading 
books from the 15 or 1600s, whether it be listening to praise and worship music, this theme of humility and contrition and trembling at the Word of God over and over and over and over and over, not only in my life, but the life of my dear wife, Brandy, as we have conversed of this many times. And it's this day that the Lord has ordained that the things that He has been showing to me be shown to you. Oh, may we thank Him for His grace this morning. I'm thankful that God did not just show me these things so that I could receive these truths and be blessed by these truths. He's allowed us to see these things so that we can mutually edify one another to hear these truths. So you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, can with full confidence know that you are living a life that God approves. In a world where people don't even consider God's desires and God's approval in their life. Let's look at this as we must move very quickly this morning. Those God approves will have. I told you we're going to look at verse 2 and then we're going to come back and pick up verse 1 for our conclusion. Because I'm going to look at those who God approves. And then we're going to look at how do we gain His approval in the end. But those God approves, first and foremost, will have sincere humility. I'm not talking about false humility. I'm talking about sincere humility. Uh, If you have already said, well, I'm humble, you're not. You've just blown it. He says, he who is humble. Who does the Lord esteem? He who is humble. Isn't it James that says this in James chapter 4, verse 6? God gives grace, or excuse me, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He quotes that from the the Old Testament where we see that that is how God operates. Back in Isaiah 57, verse 15. Same prophet that we were reading in in chapter 66, verse 2 here, says this, for this is what the high... And lofty one says. Who says it? The high and lofty one. Here's what God says again. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. Doesn't he? Beyond even our comprehension. He says, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. If our life is going to be approved by God, there must be sincere humility. What is that? Arthur Pink defines it like this. He says, true humility is recognizing our utter dependence on God for everything. If you want to examine your life to see if you are humble today, are you depending upon God for everything? Did you sing the words to the song, give me Christ or else I die? And did you mean that from the depths of your being? Sincere humility is a mark of those that God approves. How is this produced? How is it produced? Sincere humility is produced by, write it down, a true understanding of one's condition. 
your condition. We are all spiritually bankrupt. And we all have nothing to offer a holy God. That's our condition. Well, if you think anything else, you're incorrect. You have nothing to offer a holy God, not in and of yourself. Scripture confirms that over and over and over again. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after him. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are spiritually bankrupt with nothing to offer his majesty. That's our condition. Please don't try to conjure up in your mind or to let anyone conjure up in your mind anything other than that. Well, that's the charismatic movement of the day, right? Conjuring up this idea that we're good enough and, and we're smart enough and we have something to offer when we have nothing to offer. No, a person of true humility will see that humility produced by understanding their true condition. That we're wretched. And we're wretched that our righteousness is that of filthy rags. That there is no good in us at all. We are totally depraved. You know, the prideful man hates the doctrine of total depravity, doesn't he? In fact, they will fight it tooth and nail. Surely, they say, surely there's got to be a little good in us. Not according to the Bible, there isn't. Not according to what I know about me, and I'm honest about, there isn't. Well, we must be honest about our true condition. We are totally wicked, totally depraved. When we become honest about that condition, then we have inched toward humility. Until then, we're far from it. We've been honest about your condition. Because a person must be brought to the knowledge of their bankrupt spiritual condition in order to truly see their need for Christ. If you're not yet spiritually bankrupt, you've not yet seen your need for Christ. You're not yet saved. God does not yet approve of you. Who does He approve? He who is humble, one who has a true understanding of their condition, one who is, like Augustus' top lady said in the hymn, Rock of Ages, when he said, this nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing. I have nothing to offer a holy God. Nothing. None of you are going to stand at judgment with something in your hand to offer God, who is in need of nothing. Top lady goes on to say, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. He's honest about his condition. Watch what he says next. Naked, come to thee for dress. I have nothing. Oh, it's in, in, in direct opposition to those in Laodicea who said we have rich and oh, we're rich and we have acquired great, great wealth and we're in need of nothing. And God says to them, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're bind, you're naked. He says, naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, 
What a word. What a word that we never use any longer in the modern church culture. Foul. Detestable to the nostrils of God is my stench. He said, foul. I to thy fountain fly. He said, was it, he says, what, was it not for your cleansing? The cleansing of your fountain. That would be hopeless. He says, wash me, Savior, or I die. What's top lady saying? Apart from the grace of God, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we're utterly worthless, desperately helpless, and eternally useless. That is our condition. And one who is going to be humbled must first recognize their condition. Because it is in recognizing our condition that we truly learn to depend on Christ. Even beyond salvation. Oh, shouldn't we be walking in humility now as believers beyond salvation, trusting in Christ at every turn, with every thought, every decision? Those God approves will have sincere humility produced by a true understanding of one's condition. Secondly, a true understanding of one's capabilities. You want to see humility in your life? Get honest with yourself about your capabilities. What you really can do. What you really have to offer. Right? So many people think they have so much to offer God. I have this talent and I have this gift and I have you have nothing to offer God. In fact, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. He is the vine. You are the branches. Oh, will we get honest today and see humility in our life by our admittance of our capabilities, or better put, our incapabilities? Because we are totally incapable of meeting God's requirements and His standards. Top lady who, again, wrote the song Rock of Ages says this, in another verse, he says, Not the labor of my hands, verse 2, can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. What was Top Lady saying? He was agreeing with Scripture. He was agreeing with Scripture in the fact that man cannot save himself. Not by the works of the law, not by your baptism, not by your church attendance, not by your own good deeds or your own good merit. You cannot save yourself. Many men spend their whole life thinking that if I do just enough good, it will somehow outweigh the bad. It will not. Because the good you do in your flesh is no good at all. You're incapable of saving yourself. You're incapable of attaining righteousness on your own. That's why Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. So many times we focus on the grace there, and we should. But let's focus on the flip side of that. It's not of yourselves. Why? Because you're Deeds, your works, your efforts, all of those things are incapable of saving you. He says it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. All of your efforts could not atone for sin. He must save. And he alone, man cannot save himself. Man cannot even come to God on his own. I, I don't know a scripture that is any clearer about this than John 6, 44. It's interesting to me that people want to debate this passage of Scripture, this verse of Scripture. As if it were to say something else, it is very plain and simple. No one can come to me. These are the words of Jesus. Did you know the words of Jesus that we're reading here in John chapter 6 are the same words of Jesus that we see in Isaiah 66? He's the Word. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. How many ones? No ones. Many of you are spinning in circles with one leg nailed to the floor, trying as you may to somehow attain righteousness, and you cannot attain it on your own. See your true capabilities today. Oh, it will humble you. When you realize that man cannot save himself, that includes you, that includes you, that includes you, and that includes you, and that includes me. When you realize that man cannot save himself, oh, it is a very humbling experience, isn't it? When you come to the realization that, that eternity awaits and there is nothing you can do about it. You must depend upon the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that and that alone saves. We just got to prove those who are sincere in humility. That being produced again by a true understanding of one's condition, a true understanding of one's capabilities. But thirdly, by a true understanding of one's Creator. You want to be humble today? Get to know your Creator. Get to know your Creator. Get to know Him as defined in the Bible. I would encourage you, open your Bible and study the attributes of God. See who He is. And in seeing who He is, you quickly realize who you are not. We think about the conversation that he had with Job. I think about this quite often when I get too big for my own britches. When he said, Job, who do you think that you are? Who are you to even talk to me? You tell the sun when to rise and when to set. You want to question me, Job? You want to question my word, Job? You know nothing. Who are you? I tell the oceans, where to stop, that you can't go any further than this. I put the mountains where they sit. Put every star in the sky. Well, that humbles a man very quickly. When we begin to see who God really is, Job says, I've heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes, and I despise myself. Job was humbled. He was humbled about his condition and his capabilities, but he was humbled in the presence of his Creator, seeing his attributes. Oh, just study the sovereignty of God for one week. One week, open up your Bible and read 
about the sovereignty of God every single day for one week and see how small you are at the end of that week. Imagine if you did it for an entire lifetime. What's wrong with the church? Everybody wants to be a big Christian. There are no such things. true Christian that God approves of is humbled. He's humbled by his creator. He sees his sovereignty. He sees his holiness. Well, do a study on the holiness of God. Oh, open up your Bibles and see how many times it refers to him as the Holy One of Israel. A description that no one else can have. We'll see who he is by studying his holiness. And see if quickly you're not brought to your knees, realizing that he is an antonym to us, the exact opposite, that we are sinful and we are lowly and we are wretched. He is pure and he is perfect and he is holy. Oh, when you do this, you begin to understand your Creator, and in understanding your Creator, He will increase, you will decrease. Oh, study His almighty, omnipotent power. See that there is nothing that He can't do. Study His omniscience. There is nothing that He doesn't know. Then walk away from that time, dependent on a magnificent God, the magnificent God of Scripture, not a God who we have created in our own human minds, who is small and lowly like us. Open the Word of God and be introduced to the God of this universe, Jehovah, who is magnificent in all of His attributes. Men aren't being humbled today in the church. They're not being encouraged understand the magnificence of Jehovah God. Well, Paul understood this, didn't he? Where he takes the, the whole book of Romans and from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 10, he gives us the greatest doctrinal thesis that the world has probably ever seen. And there in chapter 11, he stops. Verse 33, he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. He says, everything that I've taught you is a lot, but it's nothing in comparison to who he is, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord <coughs> or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, Paul understood it. He was humbled by the magnificence of Jehovah God. Can I say this to you, church? God approves the humble. It is the humble who have a true understanding of their condition. We are wretches. Is the humble who have a true understanding of our capabilities. It is the humble who have a true understanding of their creator. Oh, we understand this, that, that, that God is not here to serve us. 
We are here to bow before him and to serve him with every ounce of life that he has breathed into us. Those God approves will have sincere humility. I must move on. Though we could stay on this one topic all day, couldn't we, church? Those God approves will have. Secondly, as we read on in that second verse, he says, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Those God approves will have not only sincere humility, but they will have steadfast contrition. A contrite spirit. Psalm 51, just a few weeks ago, we spoke of Psalm 51, and we saw in verse 17 what David realized in his brokenness. He says this in 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What is contrition? It's a penitent or broken demeanor. And not just a penitent or broken demeanor at salvation. It is a continual penitent and broken demeanor as long as you wrestle with your sin in this life. How is steadfast contrition produced? First thing is this. Constant sense of sin. Many of you have been lulled asleep by the enemy. You think somehow, some way, that you have somehow attained a position to where you are above sin. Can I tell you what Scripture says? For he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. In this lifetime, none of us will be above sin. The moment that you think that you are above sin is the committing of sin. God's desire is that we are contrite in spirit, penitent, constantly in our lives, broken with a true, constant sense of sin. That means this, the reality of ever-present sin. Did you know sin is ever-present in this world? It is seeking to devour every single one of us. Is that not what? God told Cain just before he murdered his brother. He said, Cain, sin crouches at the door. Oh, please know this, dear friend. Sin is always crouching at your door, seeking to devour you. Sin is always present. We must not forget that. In fact, David, again, realized that in Psalm 51. Verse 3, he said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. David had a constant sense of sin. He saw sin for what it really is. A constant sense of sin is an awareness of the reality of ever-present sin, but it's also the realization of the perversity of sin. That our sin is perverse in nature. We have to see that. We have to see all sin as wickedness, not just the big sins that other people commit. As we stand back and say, thank you that I don't commit the big sins of the other people, but only the little sins of my life. No, one who God approves of, he or she is going to see that sin in any way, shape, or form is perverse in nature. It's wickedness. 
And that's the way we must see it. Those who have a constant sense of sin, they'll know it's ever present. They'll know it's ever perverse. Then that person will also have the recognition of potential sin in their life. Again, recognizing that you're not above sin. Never looking down on anyone else who, committed, who has committed any sin because were it not for the grace of God, and be it not for the grace of God, you would do exactly the same thing if afforded the opportunity. Recognize the potential of sin that always exists. Oh, if we had a constant sense of sin in our life, wouldn't it cause us to have a constant need for Christ in our life? Isn't it true that only Christ cancels the power of sin? Oh, we're so settled for having Christ at salvation. We have no desire for Christ after this. No desire to see him as the only hope that we have over constant sin. There is no contrition because there is no constant sense of sin. We look at this person that God approves who is steadfast in contrition, which is produced by a constant sense of sin, but also, watch this, number two, a constant sorrow over sin. You want to see contrition in your life? Oh, you must be aware and constantly sense sin's presence, what sin really is, the perverseness of sin. There also must be a constant sorrow over sin. We, we don't see this much these days. I mean a constant sorrow over sin. Like the Corinthians had, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is giving them a lesson about true godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. You know what worldly sorrow is? Worldly sorrow is when you're sorry that you got caught. When you're sorry that those who you were living for the approval of now look at you differently. You know what godly sorrow is? When you realize that you have offended the holiness of God. That you have literally provoked Him to His face. That you have spit in the face of your Creator. That's what godly sorrow over sin looks like. That's why godly sorrow over sin produces repentance and contrition. The Corinthians here, after receiving the whole first Corinthian letter, I want you to pay attention with me for just a second. They received this whole letter, a letter of rebukes, about everything they were doing wrong, and they had a laundry list of things that they were doing wrong. The second Corinthian letter then commends them because they are now sorrowful and repentant for the things that they were doing in the first Corinthian letter, and those things had been corrected. Why? They were sorrowful for those things. You know why you keep struggling with the same sin over and over and over again? You can't figure out why you're not sorrowful. You're sorry. Godly sorrow, according to the Word of God, leads to repentance. It doesn't lead to you doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. You're just feeding your flesh. 
Stop lying to yourself. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and contrition. Repentance and contrition, watch this, over your personal sin. When's the last time, professing Christian, you had sorrow for violating one of God's commandments? When is the last time that you had sorrow for speaking harshly to a brother and sister in Christ, to your wife, to your husband, to your children? When is the last time that you felt sorrow over that little white lie that if you knew you told the truth, you might be in trouble, but just to save face because you're living for the approval of others, you went ahead and told it. When's the last time that that shook you to the quick? When's the last time that you were sorrowful for that sorrow over personal sin? but also sorrow over cultural or national sin. Shouldn't we be sorrowful at what's going on in this world around us right now? Shouldn't we flood the gates of heaven in prayer, the throne of grace, that God would have mercy on this country, that God would have mercy on this world? Because just like personal revival in your life, barring God's intervention, you're in trouble. Well, this world is in trouble barring God's intervention. And we cry out to him, not only over our personal sin, crushed and broken, but over the sins of this country. We should be full of sorrow and grief for sin. Isaiah understood this, didn't he? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 57, when he comes into the presence of the Lord, he says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. There's this personal sin. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Watch what he says next. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Well, he had sorrow for personal sin and sorrow for national and cultural sin. He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What happened? Before his guilt was taken away and his sin atoned for, there was sorrow. There was sorrow in his heart over his own personal sin and sin in general in this world. Where is that? Where is that in the group of people who call themselves the church these days? A constant godly sorrow for sin. Where is this sorrow? Where is this contrition? Oh, we flood the altar, don't we, with endless wishes and requests and desires. Heal my family member. Heal my friend. Heal my dog. With no regard to our spiritual healing that we so desperately need, coming to his throne and contrition, and sorrow, flooding the throne room with tears of contrition, brokenness over our sin and the sins of our people. Psalm 34 says this in verse 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many would say, I just don't feel 
like God's very close. He's close to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. He's close to those who are contrite. Why? Because we've already seen this. He approves of those. Who does he esteem? He was humble, contrite in spirit. Whereas the church is constant sorrow and contrition. Do you know this? Those who are approved by God will express that. They will express true contrition and godly sorrow in their lives. So those God approves will have steadfast contrition produced by a constant sense of sin, constant sorrow over sin. And thirdly, write this down. Another missing element. Most modern churches. A constant scorn for sin. Thomas Watson said this, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Where did you get that, church? Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. We must have a relentless hatred of wickedness. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 127, Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Would you please hear that today? Examine your life. Is there a constant scorn for sin, a hatred of wickedness? May we ask this question, where has the holy hatred of sin gone from the church? Where is that holy sorrow and hatred? Well, I mean, the kind that you read about when, you, when you're taken back in the life of Jonathan Edwards there in Northampton as he preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God and the people mourn over their sin. Not the lost people, the church people. Full of sorrow full of hatred for the sin of themselves and the sin of their people. Where is this contrition in the church today? Where is it gone? People aren't asking any longer what pleases God. You know what people are asking in the church? They're asking this. What can I still get away with in my flesh and still be considered a Christian? What can I still do that's sinful and still be approved by all the people in the church instead of how must I live my life to please God? Where's the hatred in the church over sin and for sin? In fact, Romans chapter 12, Paul says this to the church in verse 9, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Are you hating what is evil? It's interesting in the church today, everybody wants everything to be only about love. He says it must be sincere. They don't want to talk about hating evil, forsaking it, clinging only to the good. They don't want to talk about scorn for sin. The reality is this. Men who love sin have infiltrated the church. 
My prayer for you is that today God would spark a holy hatred in your life for sin, that you would see sin for what it really is. It is the very thing that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. Every sin you commit is offensive to him because it was for that sin. What sin? Big sin, little sin, any sin. It's for that sin that he has died, that he gave himself. Sacrifice of atonement. The scorn that we should have is why the true believer really belongs to Christ. Because you saw who you really are. And when you see who you really are, you can't like that guy. Well, there is a guy that I know named Kirk who I despise. Why? Because he's everything opposite of Christ. And the more that God teaches me to hate him, the more I love Christ for saving me from him. Where is constant scorn for sin? It is that scorn that would cause us to run from our corruption and run to the purity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Would you see your sin today and run to him? Those approved by God will show steadfast contrition. They will show in their life sincere humility. Thirdly, we must travel quickly. Those God approves will have serious concern for God's word. Watch what he says next there, verse 2. He says, this is the one I esteem. Need I remind you of verse 1? This is what the Lord says. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in the spirit and trembles at my word. Church, this is more than just a concern for being obedient to the word of God. It's a call to have a high view of God and his word in every single area of our lives. If God's Word is only important to you on a Sunday morning, then it's not very important to you. If God's Word is only important to you on a Wednesday evening, then it's not very important to you. It's Jesus Himself who said, This man cannot live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. No wonder... No wonder American Christianity is starving. Because they have no serious concern for God's Word. No serious concern for it. They don't tremble at the truths contained in the Bible. How does serious concern for God's Word come? How is it produced? A focus on God's biblical course. You don't have true concern for the Word of God, serious concern. Have a focus on God's biblical course. What is that? His will. And it's His will, God's will defined by Scripture. Not God's will defined by what you want. But isn't it interesting? Many people decide what God's will is based on what their will is. It doesn't work like that. You go to the Word of God, and the Word of God defines God's will. And then you live what the Word of God defined. You don't. Live your will, call it God's will, and then try to change what the Word of God says. 
Don't we know there's enough of that going on in this lost and wicked world? Those who God approves will have serious concern for God's word. They'll have a focus on God's biblical course for their life. They will be more concerned with God's will than anything else. And they will know God's will. How will they know God's will? Romans chapter 12 says this in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Why? Because it's not God's will for you to conform to the pattern of the world. If you're doing and you're acting and you're speaking like the world, he says, that's not my will for you. He says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is our mind transformed? He says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do we know the will of God? Our mind is transformed. And how is our mind transformed? Our mind is transformed by the very word of God. In fact, that's what Jesus said in John 17, 17. As he prayed for the disciples, he said, sanctify them by truth. And then he said, your word is truth. Set them apart from the world. You know how many so-called Christians are not set apart from the world? They have no serious concern for the word of God. It's a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing. I'll take the stuff that I like, and I'll leave the stuff that I don't. God's Word is not a take-it-or-leave-it thing. It's a life-or-death thing. Do you have a focus on God's biblical course for your life? Do you know His will not by what you want, but by His Word? Because His will is defined in Scripture. Not only that, the Christian walk is defined in Scripture. How should we live as Christians? It's right there in black and white. And some of your Bible's red, but it's all red, isn't it? He says in 1 John 2, 6, here's how you walk. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Simple enough, isn't it? Those who God foreknew, he predestined to conform to the image of his Son. People ask, well, how can you know if, if you're those who God predestined and elected? Do you look like Jesus? Are you looking more like Jesus than you did yesterday? Is there a work that's going on through the Spirit conforming you to Christ? Is there? Welcome to the family of God. You're in. You're His. Very clear. Your Christian walk is defined by Scripture. What should it look like? Christ. Christ. Well, shouldn't it be our prayer, Lord, knock off anything in me, on me, that doesn't look like Jesus? Show me what it is. I surrender it to you even this very day, even now. Oh, don't wait for the invitation. Even now. God is showing you. Run to his feet with tears of brokenness. Concerned over his will, concerned over his walk. Focus on God's biblical course. We'll see God's will as defined by Scripture. We'll see the Christian walk as defined by Scripture. And we'll forsake the world as defined by Scripture. 1 John 2, verse 15. says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You mean to break that down real slow so that you can understand it? If you are still in the world, the Word of God says you are not in Christ. You say, well, who are you preacher to tell me how I'm supposed to live? I'm not telling you how you're supposed to live. God is. You told me at the beginning of this message you'd like to know His opinion on the matter. There it is. It's a closed case. 
That's what he says. You want to see seriousness for God's Word in your life? Let there be a focus on God's biblical course for your life. Be concerned about the will of God. Your day-to-day life and your walk and forsaking of the world being what Christ died for you to be. The second thing that will produce a serious concern for God's Word is this, a fear of God's biblical character. We've already talked much about His attributes, but who He is. Who He is based not on popular opinion or man's thoughts or Time magazine or the Internet. But who is God as defined by the Scripture? Oh, let us see the majesty and the magnitude of who He really is in His Word. When you do that, you will find yourself in a place of trembling, knowing this, that He did not have to save you. That He could have at any time allowed your life to be taken You would have received the hell that you deserved for all eternity. Let that cause you to tremble when you see the truth of the Word of God. That before the foundations of the earth, He set a plan in order to rescue you. So that you did not have to perish. And it wasn't because you were a good person. It's because He's a good God. Well, see that and tremble this morning. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not of you. It's him. Fear his biblical character. Knowing that he could have annihilated you from the face of the earth at any time. And he need not make apology for that. And had he done it, he still would have remained just as holy as he is to this day. That he has showered you with grace and mercy. Well, fear his biblical character. Know who you serve. You don't serve some weak, impotent, helpless God. You serve the Jehovah God of the Bible who parted the seas so his people could pass. Who killed every firstborn male in Egypt. Who did not have the blood covering over their door, over the sides, the top of the door. You serve that same God. Tremble at the fact of knowing He has welcomed you into His presence. Did you know this in Christ? He says we can boldly or confidently come before His throne of grace in our time of need. When we come to that throne, let us tremble there. Not for one second thinking that we deserve to be there, spiritually speaking. Because we do not. But it is because a great price was paid at Calvary through Jesus Christ that we are welcome into the throne room of God only by His grace. Well, fear God's biblical character today. Take His word seriously. Why? Because those who God approves will tremble at His word. They'll take it seriously. Oh, when we read Scripture on Sunday morning, they'll be the ones who have their Bible read. They're not still talking to everyone around them. They know when this is open, the very oracles of God are coming forth. 
Not only will their ears become attentive, but their hearts will. Lord, show me what you say. Because what you say matters. And it matters most. Because of who you are. As revealed in Scripture. Oh, see his character in the Word. Thirdly, a serious concern for God's Word is produced by a following of God's biblical commands. A following of God's biblical commands. Those approved by God will delight in following God's commands. Did you know a true Christian, a true believer will delight in obedience? The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 119.35. And I want you to see it. I want you to understand it. He says, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. You know what's interesting? Many people live, even in the church, as if God's commands are some kind of burden. Oh, I have to do this, and I have to do that. You know, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take upon you, upon you my yoke, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is what? Light. Why? Because when we are able to obey Christ, it is a delight because we know at one time in our life, before Christ, we were not able to obey Him. We were not able to bring the Father glory with our lives. But now we get to. I've got to go to church because my wife wants me to. No unredeemed sir, you get to go to church. And it is here that you will hear the words of life. And those words of life can set you free. Those words of life will break the curse of sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. You can be healed of your sin and your unbelief this day. And if you are, and when you are, you will delight in being able to be obedient to the commands of the Word of God. Even the one that says, forsake not the assembly of the believer." You'll run to the house of God, excited, delighted. Oh, you won't be looking at your watch. When is this guy going to be done? No, because you'll be serious about the Word of God. Following the Word of God, it'll be a delight to you. Psalm 119, 129 says this, Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. Why do we obey the Word of God? Because it's wonderful. Oh, if you're still thinking that God's cramping your lifestyle by these commands, you're not yet redeemed. God is keeping you from destruction, from yourselves, from your sin, by these commands. Rejoice in them today. Rejoice that God would love you so much that He would give you a list of things that you are capable of really messing up. We'll see them today for what they are. His love for us, not a burden. Let that be your delight. Delight yourself in being obedient to accepting the Scriptures, the Holy Word of God. Those approved by God are going to embrace the true, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Psalm 119, 160 says this, All your words are true, and all your righteous laws are eternal. Everything he says is true. Base your life on it. Don't base your life on your feelings. Don't base your life on your own intellect or your philosophies or the philosophies of others. 
What does the Word of God say? And then live it. Obedience through accepting the Scriptures, but also obedience through applying the Scriptures. Apply it. James says this in James chapter 1, very familiar passage that I'm sure you all know, but I will remind you of it. Do not merely listen, verse 22, to the Word, and so deceive yourselves. How many people come in week after week after week just to sit down and listen to the Word because they've been trained in their religiosity to sit down and listen to the Word of God, but yet they don't do the next part. He says, don't deceive yourself by just merely listening. He says, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And then he departs, he forgets what he looks like. So I ask, who are you? Are you going today to hear the Word of God? Let out a religious grunt, leave here, go to lunch, live life as you always have with no regard to the things that we've spoken of today. Unfortunately, many will because they don't value have no serious concern for God's Word. The psalmist not only had obedience through accepting the Scripture and obedience through applying the Scripture, they had obedience through appreciating the Scripture. They loved the Word. Do you? Do you love the Word? Those approved by God, they will be thankful for every promise, every precept, every command every truth contained in the Word of God, and they will delight themselves in being obedient to everything that they hear. It will be a joy, not a burden. Psalm 119, verse 12 says this, Praise be to you, O Lord, teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Psalm 119, 24, the psalmist says this, Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Well, so many people are looking for advice about so many things, right? The last place that they consult is the word of God. He's your counselor. Psalm 119, 89 says this, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. The very word of God has preserved your life. You see it as such? Is there a serious concern for God's word? What did he say? Let's go back and look. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are you one who God approves this morning? Well, isn't that a serious question in light of the topic, in light of the Scripture? Isn't that a serious question for all of us to ask? Does God really approve of me? Well, perhaps you find yourself like me. You would answer that question, well, in and of myself, absolutely not. In and of myself, I am not humble, I am not contrite, and I do not take the Word of God seriously. But I am thankful. 
for the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ that he has extended mercy to me and that he has forgiven me and that he has changed me. So that now I can be made humble and contrite in spirit by the Holy Spirit who lives in me through the word of God and I can tremble at his word knowing who he is. As defined by scripture, knowing the Savior who loved me, who came to this earth to die on a cross in my behalf. So we have seen who God approves. Let's go back to the first verse that I told you we would go to just very quickly. Because this gives us some answers. We've seen those that God approves, and we have to ask this question, how do I become one of those? How do I become one of those? Verse 1, watch this. This is what the Lord says. Who said it? Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? These are sarcastic questions. They're hypothetical. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. You say, well, how does that tell me how I can be one of the ones who he esteems, who he approves of, humble, contrite in spirit, trembling at his word? Watch. He's telling them this. Stop trusting in yourself. God says, look, you think that you can do this on your own. You cannot. If we take Isaiah and we go back and we look, he has already poured out for us the Messiah, the suffering Savior who came and who died on a cross to redeem his people. We are here now at the end, after the new heavens and the new earth is seen through the eyes of Isaiah, what is to come. And he's saying this to them. Everything that you have seen and everything that you have received thus far from the prophet Isaiah and creation all around you, I took care of that. Get your eyes off of you. You can't build me enough temples. You can't build me enough cathedrals. You can't make enough sacrifices. You can't do enough church work. Those things won't save you. Those things won't humble you. Those things won't make you contrite and tremble in the presence of God and at his word. Stop trusting in yourself. Many of you are on that path, aren't you? Thinking that if you just do enough good, it will hopefully in the end outweigh all of the bad. It won't. The scale is already tipped and it is not in your favor. Stop trusting in yourself. God is bigger than you. The second thing today, see God for who He really is. Well, if you're saying today, well, I can't be humble and I can't be contrite, I can't tremble at the word of God, good. Good. You're in a great position. Because with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Did you know this? That often taken out of context, scripture reference is in regard to someone being saved. Jesus tells his disciples, he tells them this, it's easier for a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. And the disciples ask this question, huh, then who can be saved? That's the question. He says, interesting when we contextualize things, isn't it? He says, who can be saved? Oh, with man? 
It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He says, I can save those I desire to save because I am a Savior. I am salvation for all who believe. See God for who He really is. He is a God who saves. Not only see Him for who He really is, thirdly, submit to God His way. What is He saying there in Isaiah? He's saying, Look, you can't really build anything that's going to impress me. I created everything. I'm so far above you that you can't even understand me. You think that you can dwell with me because you do things. You cannot. Those I approve of are humble and contrite in spirit, and they tremble at my word. Are you one of those? And you can't be one of those on your own. You have to do it my way. What is his way? Well, we have to see that. We must submit to God his way. What is his way? Jesus defined this very clearly, didn't he? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. What is God's way? To be humble and contrite in spirit and to tremble at his word? It is through Christ. And to know Christ is to know how wretched you are apart from Christ. And to know Christ is to know the magnificence of God. To see his majesty and his glory. To know Christ is to have forgiveness and eternal life. But without Christ, you trying to do it your way, you're never going to make it. It's Christ and Christ alone. Submit to God his way today. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Would you surrender to Christ today? Be humble and be broken and tremble at the very Word of God. Well, why do we tremble at the Word of God? Because the Word of God that you have disobeyed your whole life is the same Word of God that you hear this very day. And God uses the same Word break your hard heart of stone and to give to you a heart of flesh. Would you turn to Christ today and be saved? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you now, thanking you for your word. Lord, I pray for your people first today. And a fresh look at you. And a fresh look at Christ would bring humility and contrition, sorrow and lowliness because that is what you desire. May it bring us to our knees in repentance, not just now, but constantly trusting in Christ and Christ alone. May we tremble at your word. May we confess our sin and know that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I also pray for those who are here today who are lost and undone without Christ. They are dependent upon your mercy. God, as your son, I would ask that you would show your mercy to them today. That you would rescue them, moving them from darkness into light as they surrender to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And trust him and him alone to place them in right standing with their holy creator. And we will give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.